Good morning. We're talking to Paul Tice. He is the author of The Race to Zero, How ESG Investing Will Crater the Global Financial System from Encounter Books. And uh, Paul, I guess I want to start here. Uh, here in the state of Kansas, they've already started doing some things legislatively to say that uh, ESG or environmental, social and governance investing is not going to control things like the state pension system. The Kansas legislature went ahead and passed a uh, fiduciary responsibility bill last session to say, hey, we want to be sure that the investments that are made are made with, frankly, the ability for retirees in the Kansas public retirement system to uh, to know the profit is first and foremost. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, there aren't a lot of states like that. Your book talks about how um, if ESG is taken to its logical conclusion, um, there could be some serious consequences. Can you explain at least some of those? Sure. Um, and, and thanks for having me. Um, so with ESG, um, it, it's using non-financial factors to drive uh, investment decision making. It's also driving corporate policy, and it's being forced on the markets by third-party activists. And it's led by the United Nations. You know, one of the things uh, I talk about in the book is that we need to realize that ESG and sustainable development and climate change—they're all UN verticals and they're all intertwined. Um, and again, it's all predicated on stakeholder capitalism, which is the theory that companies should be run for the good of society and the planet, which obviously is not capitalism. So it's changing the markets. And I wrote the book because uh, I think it's important to start, you know, speaking obvious truths about this. And the problem until now is that people on Wall Street can't speak out and criticize it because uh, you'll immediately be canceled. And that was something that I experienced, you know, directly. So it's not a voluntary system. Maybe initially over the last 10 years, right after the crisis, uh, people were like enticed into it through virtue signaling and, and how it would make the industry look bad, better. Um, but, you know, now it's become very prescriptive. So I think it's good that, that red states are taking control of their pension funds. But the problem is there are way more assets in the blue state pension fund system. And, you know, we need to come up with a solution that, that frees up the market again, because I, I think this is really under duress. And, and the real risk now between now and 2030 is that regulations are coming that are going to cement all of this in place. Well, and one of the things that would see, seems hard to me is uh, if you truly believe that this is a global problem, then you've got to get everybody in the globe on the same page. And uh, I don't mean to uh, to equate the two, but it's kind of like the atomic bomb, Paul, in that the United States had, was the first one to use it, and then now nobody else can. Um, and so the to be able to say the United States is going to take the lead on um, being the greenest nation in the world uh, and then we want we want the rest of the world to follow us they're just going to say no we're not going to do that um, I mean they do that with the, the nuclear programs in different in different countries around the world now and so then that just puts us at a competitive disadvantage when the large economies across the world the Chinas and the Indias and so on say you know what you do what you want to try to save the planet but we're going to grow our economy first and foremost doesn't it yeah, I mean, I think the other truth to acknowledge around all of this, including ESG investing, is that it's a two-tiered system. Um, it's mainly directed at the developed world, uh, the industrialized West, and then the emerging markets, uh, the third world, which includes China and India, 
by, by the definitions that they use, they're given a free pass. So we need to cut our emissions in, in the developed world, which means shrinking our economies, right? It's going to lead to more poverty. It's going to lower um, living standards. Um, it's going to lead to increased mortality rates because electricity get, uh, grids will be less reliable. But then the third world is adding coal generation um, over the last eight years since everyone uh, you know, signed the Paris Agreement uh, and committed to those goals. So it's a, it's a two-tiered system, and you see that in the financial markets, too. You know, the standards that, that U.S. companies are being held up to are completely different from what I would argue are, are riskier emerging market companies and, and countries. So, um, you know, that's the logic of it. Um, okay, so I guess if you take the... Um if you take the ability to be completely competitive away from the leader to to kind of bring them back toward the pack, whether for whatever whatever the reason might be, um, no matter how noble, doesn't that make it difficult to actually see innovation? I mean, um, granted, I'm not not a very old man, but uh, the we remember the cleaning up of Lake Erie and the, innov- the innovative ways that we can solve problems if we know that there's a problem in this country. Uh, isn't it? almost at counterintuitive to say, no, what we're going to do is we're going to cut off any problem before it happens, and then the rest of the world doesn't know how to fix it either. Yeah, I think the problem is, is that there's a divergence of opinion about whether there really is a climate emergency and whether carbon is pollution. Um, you know, I think the data is flawed. I, I devote a whole chapter to it, just walking through all the fatal flaws in the, in the science and the underlying data um, from, a, from an objective environmental standard. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, you know, stands at the top of the pack in terms of clean water and clean air, and we've accomplished a lot in the last 50 years. But it's when we get into this abstract you know, definition of carbon pollution that you know, clearly there's not a consensus. There's certainly not a scientific consensus that we have a climate emergency right now. So I think that's one of the problems. A lot of people will not speak out because they're afraid of being called a climate denier. And if you want to challenge ESG, then that's the immediate fight that you get into. Um, but, you know, I think this is a way to get the private sector and, and the financial markets to do the dirty work for governments, which, you know, clearly everyone has signed on to the Paris Agreement um, almost nine years ago now. No one's really living up to their... Uh, their promises, right? But if you can defund oil and gas companies, you know, through the back door of the financial markets, it'll be less transparent to your voters uh, and consumers, and the government doesn't get any fingerprints on it, right? So that's why I wrote the, another reason to write the book is to make everyone aware that, you know, this is, is probably the, the serious part of it between now and 2030. Is it really going to be a case of if we don't end up with a executive branch in America that is that has different opinions on ESG, that this is all going to end up getting um, written in those parts of the law that Congress doesn't write, for want of a better way of putting it? Um, or, is, or is this something where we can do something other than at the ballot box? Is there a way to vote with our dollars uh, regarding this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we need to acknowledge that you know, what, what's taken place in terms of uh, implementing this agenda has been a very non-democratic process, uh, at least in this country. 
Uh, it's been implemented through backdoor regulations at the executive level, um, as well as through the courts. Uh, and during the, the Trump years, you had states and local um, um, municipalities that were aligning with the Paris Agreement and, and the Sustainable Development Goals, kind of going over and above the national level. Um, no one ever voted on this. We've never had a referendum on, on climate change and whether you know the, the population wants to to pay, um, you know, and, and and do what's needed in order to accomplish the, these goals. So to reverse it, I, I do think that you know the U.S. is probably um, the the most critical country uh, and market uh, around this process because the way ESG and climate change sets up is that it's a prisoner's dilemma. Everyone has to agree to play along with these rules and, and, and you know, basically uh, put their economies at risk um, and, and live with lower growth going forward. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't work. And, and I think we saw that during the, the Trump administration where when he announced that we were coming out of the Paris Agreement, it literally, you know, set the entire U.N. complex uh, on fire, right? Because if, if the U.S. can remain a holdout for climate and ESG, then I think, um, you know, it's going to put the entire agenda at risk. So if, if we get a Republican back in the White House this year, I think that will be critical. Uh, I do think the 24 elections uh, worldwide, and it's a very heavy election year, will be key in terms of furthering this agenda or helping to reverse it. But, but even if we don't win the White House, I think um, at the state level, you have a number of red states, to your original point, that are, are taking the lead up until now in terms of pushing back on this, whether through their pensions and, and their state finances or, more importantly, um, lobbying in uh, legal challenges to some of these regulations. So, you know, the, the template that was used for the clean power plan, um, West Virginia versus EPA, which was successful, I think we need to replicate that uh, for all of these financial regulations that, that are now coming down from the SEC, the Federal Reserve, the OCC, because, again, those are all going to cement this in place. And, you know, any company that was kind of, you know, not willing to speak out now or afraid to, to voice a different opinion, uh, they clearly won't do that going forward if they've got a regulator requiring them to do a lot of these things. So I think there's still hope. But we're going to need to have lawmakers on the Republican side, I think, step up about this um, and do the, the heavy lifting for the legal system. Well, speaking of the legal system, there is still case out there with the potential of um, at least rolling back Chevron. Chevron, of course, is the court case that uh, that allows regulators to to basically write in everything inside the lines of the law, so to speak, uh, without a whole lot of oversight. Um, so if if that were to get at least changed to the point where Congress can do more about it, um, maybe that helps, too. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm less than optimistic that Congress can actually, uh, you know, affect change. You know, I, I think, you know, some of the hearings that they've had while shedding some light on it, they don't really um, – I think move it forward, and we'll have to see if we've got you know split government going forward. So again, I, I would hold out more hope at the state level. I think Chevron, when once we get that ruling from the Supreme Court later this year, I think that will give more ammunition um, and set a good precedent for again challenging some of these regulations that are coming. So I, I think it definitely will be positive, but um, I'm just a little skeptical about whether the Republicans at the federal level can really make much progress. Just looking at the last. Oh, I don't know, 15 years.